0: There's nothing physically that can limit a remote viewer. There's nothing that you cannot penetrate with remote viewing. Why? Which is why the United States got so nervous when they found out Russia was very involved in their remote viewing, because they realized there was no secrets that could be kept from a remote viewer. So the only thing they can do is hire other remote viewers and and sorcerer types that can create energy fields of chaos. And then it makes it harder for the remote viewer to penetrate these fields that are generated by other beings because they're generating fields at the frequency that blocks a remote viewer but nothing material can block them
1: welcome to living 4d with paul chet Today's episode is a solo cast where Paul answers some of the questions that listeners have asked him on social media. You received nearly 100 questions, so could not get through all of them in one episode, but we selected questions on topics that several people had expressed an interest in, or those that were particularly insightful. The questions range from health-related, to relationship advice, to deep philosophical questions, and Paul hopes that you will find his answers interesting and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. So our first question comes from Scott McGee and he asks, who is your favorite philosopher?
0: (laughs) Boy, that's a big question. Mm. My favorite philosopher that's alive would be Ian McGilchrist. And um, if you haven't ever heard of him or studied him, just look up Ian McGilchrist, G-I-L-C-H-R-I-S-T. He has a lot of presentations on the Scientific Medical Network, which is also an excellent network if you want to have regular lectures by very deep, wise people. And... um, Ian McGillchrist recently published a two-volume set called *The Matter with Things*, which is extremely comprehensive. He's a neuroscientist, if I remember right, and a philosopher, but he's very, very good. Other than that, um, I love Friedrich Nietzsche. I love Spinoza. I like uh, Immanuel Kant. I, I've enjoyed David Hume. You know, there's a lot of them. I have a, I've studied a lot of philosophy, so the question being my favorite is a tricky one because I don't really have a favorite. I draw on a body of knowledge and synthesize it by looking at the aspects of each philosopher that seem most relevant and valuable to me and to life and to, you know, a general understanding of philosophy. So there's there's a lot of them, but I'd say the The person that I would lean on as somebody that I regard highly that's alive would be Ian McGillchrist And Ken Wilber, of course, is one of my favorite philosophers, for sure.
1: Okay, great. Uh, Next question comes from Enlightened Athlete. And the question is this, how do you deal with the emotional feeling of being an imposter? As in, who am I to do this? Why would anyone listen to me? Logically I know that's not true based on the results in my life but at times like when I'm reaching out to guests for a podcast that little voice pops up and seems so real.
0: Yeah, a lot of that type of inner voice stuff is the result of childhood development and that that's something that you know most people have to some degree whether it be who am I to do this or I'm not good enough or I'm not beautiful enough or smart enough you know all of those things are remnants usually from childhood insecurities so i think it's important for each of us to remember that we're all sparks of the divine we are all here to share our unique genius you know the way i often say it to my students is if you could imagine a giant puzzle that represented everything and everyone and every being in the universe each soul is a piece of the puzzle and so what i say to my students in class as i say if you were to see a giant puzzle on the wall with even one piece missing where would your eyes immediately go and without hesitation they all say go uh, they would go right to the empty spot i would wonder why that spot is empty and so that represents each soul we're all here and we all are part of the puzzle at any given time and each of us brings unique talents, gifts, perspectives, feeling states, intuitive access, innate wisdom. And it takes a while for most people to grow into their sense of soul and to overcome parental, uh, religious, and social programming to the point that they realize that there's something inside of them, which is their soul, that has something specific that it's here to do or to share. And once we realize that, then it's easier to see that those voices are really just subconscious programs that are running, but they're there as a gift because you know, the first thing you've got to do is you have to build a mind. So all that social programming puts constructs in our mind. Do this, don't do that. You know, watch out for people in dark alleys or whatever we get programmed into to believe. Um, these people of that religion are bad. The people of this color are bad or whatever we get programmed into. But inevitably we find out through our life experience a lot of these things aren't true. But even though we may consciously realize it, there's a voice inside of our head that's running this loop tape. And that's when it's very important to state in your, within yourself or out loud what your dream is. So if your dream is, you know, for my, my dream is to teach and live holistic health. So if I was getting on stage and a voice in my head said I'm not good enough, I would say back to the voice, thank you for reminding me that I have a mind virus. My dream is to share as much knowledge and wisdom of holistic health and what I know to be true as possible. And then I would tell that voice, I don't need to be reminded of what you may have thought was true at one time. Another technique I learned from Stanley Krippner's teachings is called name it, blame it, and tame it. So you say, name it. Oh, there's that self-demeaning voice in my head. I'm going to call it the insecurity dragon. So whenever it pops up, you say, oh, hello, Mr. Insecurity Dragon. Thank you for reminding me that you're still around, to remind me to love myself. Blame it. Whenever you're around, you try to make me feel insecure, and that's not helpful. Tame it. State your dream and act affirmatively. So whatever it is that your dream is for the moment, the relationship, the situation, state it and stick with it. Each time you do that and state your dream, it's important to put your heart into it, put emotional emotion into it, because the stronger the emotion, the more influence there is on the reprogramming of the neural networks in the brain. And the neural networks, based on research, start reforming immediately, um, literally within you know minutes of you thinking a thought, especially if you emotionalize it, the more you repeat that, the more the network forms, which is why when we're learning something, we often have to do it repeatedly, then all of a sudden it seems like we just know how to do it because the neural network forms. So those are some tips I would use for that. But I would say don't feel too bad because everybody's got some degree of that in their head.
1: Well, here's a good follow-up question to that one um, from Felipe, uh, which is particularly relevant to new or, or nearly new listeners of your podcast, could you clarify the difference between the mind, the spirit, and the soul?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> mind, the best definition for mind that I've ever found in all my research, and I have a comprehensive uh, multiple chapters, two two key chapters, but there's a lot on on all these things in my new book series. But mind according to Dr. Dan Siegel, who spent years working with a group of very intelligent people to define mind, mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. So I'll say that again. Mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Now something very interesting also comes out of that because spirit is the flow of energy and information. In order for you to have a mind, there has to be at least a subject-object relationship. So if you're thinking about something and you're witnessing your own thoughts, and you say, geez, why do I keep thinking that about myself, for example? Then you, the perceiver, are the subject and the thought itself becomes the object. If someone else says something to you or you're listening to a podcast and I give you information that you're listening to, then I'm the object of your awareness. I'm giving you the information, and you're the subject. So that's mind-to-mind communication. The, two, the key thing is there has to be two points of sentience for a mind. Unless you go into a broader definition of mind, such as two computers talking, they are not sentient, they are just information processors. So many people think of computers like minds, but they're not really minds, they're information processors. They're just running programs, they don't have any conscious awareness. Uh, there's, a computer doesn't know the difference between one word and another, it's just responding to programs. But spirit is the flow of energy and information, and thoughts are also spirit. I mean, I could go very deep into this, but yeah, I'll just keep it simple because I'd have to give you a much longer explanation. So, remember the entire universe, according to physics, quantum physics, many branches of science, multiple branches of science, have all concluded that the entire universe is created of energy and information. So, for example, sunlight moves from the sun to the earth, and... There you have the flow of energy and information. There's obviously energy there. It'll burn you. And there's obviously information there because it informs plants. If there's no uh, information in the sunlight, then the plant wouldn't be able to use it to make things. So these are there's, these are more natural science types perspectives. So thought and spirit are really very similar concepts, except... The sun is flowing its spirit in every direction at once, whereas a mind is generally focusing on a given concept at a given time, you know, whatever you're talking about or thinking about. Now, interestingly, love is the primary bonding force. So an atom has elect- electron, proton, Neutron, it's, it's got a bonding force, so love is what holds the entire of creation together. But love itself requires an an I and a thou. So if I say, I love my wife Penny, then I am the I, and she is the thou, or she is the object of my devotion. So interestingly, what you find is that the same f- two qualities of love, which are An I and a thou, or two things to bring together, are what causes the flow of energy and information. Love is the flow of energy and information through empathic or compassionate connection to self or other. Mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And spirit is the flow of energy and information. So those are are the distinctions that I can make in a few minutes without going much deeper. And then soul is consciousness within. Now soul can be very deep if you really want to get into the anatomy of the soul. I would have to go through a very long discussion and I have also quite a number of diagrams in my new book series that look exactly at what the soul is. And the deeper you go into it, the more comprehensive it is. But soul is really the animating force of any living creature and soul includes the conscious aspects of yourself it includes the unconscious aspects of yourself and it also includes the mind of yourself so your soul contains your mind your personal unconscious your your personal unconscious your shadow and it also gives you the capacity for intuition. And Steiner says that when you're using intuition to look at thought, you are looking at the flow of spirit. You are actually looking at spirit. So there's another conception from Steiner. So the soul is really a multi-part entity, just like we look at a car, we don't look at a car and say to your friend, look, those are my lug nuts over there, or that's my bumper, or there's my windows. We know that the collection of parts that makes the car makes the car. We get on a ship, and it has a name, and we say, I'm on the Queen Elizabeth, or whatever it is. And so all the aspects of the car, or the ship, give it its presence, its sense of being. And Steiner gives a model, Steiner says anything with an inside and an outside has a soul. So that goes all the way to the atom, because there's not much below an atom with an inside and an outside, that I know of, you know, if you thought of a photon possibly as having an inside and an outside, you, you could conceive that, but I don't really think that's accurate based on science, but we know from atoms up we have an inside and an outside, So Steiner starts at the mineral soul, then he says the next stage of evolution is the biological soul, which is your body or any living organism from a single-celled organism like an amoeba up. Then we develop as a human being, as we start becoming educated and conditioned in society, we develop what Steiner calls the intellectual soul. Then we reach the point in our life where we realize a lot of the things that we thought were true— aren't true. and I'm sure most of you have had that experience, or you read stuff out of books and believed it, but then found out it was wrong. I mean, tons of people that came to my Czech Institute training programs with fancy degrees and all sorts of stuff quickly found out that things they turned were, they thought were true from school just weren't true, and it's easy for me to prove a lot of these things. Point being is, once you get to the point where you begin to question your own thoughts and beliefs and you ask yourself, is it really true? Is it true that Jesus is the only Son of God and whatever? Then you're actually giving birth to what Steiner calls the awareness soul. And that's the beginning of your process of individuation, of separating yourself from the programming that you got largely unconsciously and beginning to identify what's true for you that you can validate and verify, or, or even that just you gravitate towards because of your own personal bias. But as long as you're authentically challenging a belief, you're in the phase of Steiner's Awareness Soul. Then other aspects of the soul are the creative soul. So, Once we start genuinely expressing our own creativity, and I'll give you a difference there. If you're just painting, if you're just sitting next to a house and painting the house like it really looks, you're basically using a paintbrush to do what a camera can do. But if you're painting something unique and novel, something that's of your own creation, that would be an expression of the uh, the creativity soul then we evolve to the intuitive soul, which is really the soul's capacity to draw on the rest of itself. And this is the part I had to leave out because it's too complex, but the soul cannot be separate from anything in creation for reasons that would be too long to explain. But just a short explanation is you look at yourself in the mirror, you see yourself, and you think, there I am. But you're Cell every cell in your body, according to current science, is replaced every year. So when I see Paul in the mirror, I don't see the same guy I saw a few days ago because your epidermis is turns over every three days. Uh you know, every muscle cell in your body turns over every something like every six weeks. So the reality of it is is that what we think of ourselves is really more of a mental image. And it's based on our genetics and and structure and things like that. But we're constantly changing. One minute we're drinking beer, the next minute we're eating cookies. and, And, you know, we pee it out and poop it out and breathe it out. And some of it gets metabolized into our tissues and we wear that for a while. So there you can actually see that the perception of the soul is is. Much vaster than it looks like because the air you're breathing right now was probably got some molecules that someone breathed out in China two days ago that got here on the jet stream and whoever else is in the room with you. And you're constantly replacing the water in your body and it could come from anywhere in the world and water can be millions and millions of years old. So what I'm showing you, even at a physical level, is that what the soul is cannot be isolated to any one point in space or time. So, how that relates to the intuitive soul without getting into the metaphysical aspects of it is that the ego creates the illusion of separation or individuation. I mean, it, my ego makes me think I'm separate from Penny, which is a necessary vehicle for love to experience itself or to, to be experienced. And then, but once you get rid of the ego, like if you get into a real deep meditation, Depending on the type of meditation, or you're deep in a shamanic journey, you know I can assure you that 10 grams of mushrooms will teach you a lot about the universal nature of your soul. <laughs> All of a sudden, your ego can't control itself anymore. It can't can, can't create this isolated image, and, and you find yourself one with everything. So the final stage of the soul is what Steiner calls spirit soul union, and that is when you unite with God, which in you know eastern philosophy would call be called nirvana which means to blow out or to extinguish and that's when you return back to the mysterious source from which you came whether you call that god or source whatever you want to call it but really that's the source of the soul and because that is one with all that is because there is nothing here but that in other words everything in existence is an expression of that prime source including your own soul. So the soul basically wears these garments that give it this perception of self. And by the way, I didn't mention Plotinus earlier, because uh, Plotinus is definitely one of my favorite philosophers, but the reason I thought of it now is because Pl- Plotinus's teachings on the soul are quite extraordinary and very powerful. So I gave the answer to the mind, to the spirit, and to the soul, right? Was there, Was that it? That's my short answer.
1: (laughs) We don't have a podcast long enough for the long answer.
0: Well, we have six volumes of books coming out, six volume set of books that'll get into it with beautiful art and diagrams.
1: And your new book set is called?
0: Welcome to Spirit, Jim, Your Guide to More Love, Life, and Freedom.
1: And I know we've had quite a few questions about when that might be out. Oh my and God, if you can tricky. tell us about it, but uh, I don't think we should answer that right now just to say it's forthcoming.
0: Yeah, it's coming as fast as I can go. Um, what was going to be one book grew to three, and to five, and to six. So it's going to be about 1,700 pages. So we're trying to make each book around 300 pages and I'm putting the workbook sections in behind each chapter instead of publishing a separate book. Which So that's another book and I'm producing a beginner's guide. So actually what was... One book has now turned into six volumes with the workbook included, which is seven, plus the beginner's guide, which is eight, plus the online membership program and lessons. So we're working as fast as we can. We're going to publish the first. I'm going into edit on the first two volumes any day now, and then they'll go to layout to penny and we're going to publish them all on Kindle first because of the ease of transfer. And these books are going to be oversized, glossy, high high quality productions. Like I said, loads of beautiful art and diagrams. So it's really going to be, I designed these books so that knowing most people will never read that much. If you just look at the pictures and the diagrams, it'll have a transformative effect on you right through your psyche. So, I put a lot of work into finding a very skilled artist and she is very good and the art is quite powerful. Nobody's looked at the art without going, "Oh my god, that's incredible." And everybody wants to buy the art, so the art will be for sale on the new website. Hi everybody. Today, I have a very special, practical, free offering for you. I suspect you know that low back injuries are the most common of all orthopedic injuries, regardless of age, profession, or what sport people play. And a huge percentage of low back injuries happen while squatting. Squatting is one of the seven primal pattern movements I identified as essential to our ability to function well in our home, work, recreational, fitness, or sports environments. Most don't realize it. But the squat pattern is one of the most common patterns that lead to low back injuries. We are using the squat pattern when we get in and out of chairs, on and off the toilet, or engage small children. Additionally, to get in and out of a car requires a single-legged squat with a bend and a twist, particularly if you drive a car that's low to the ground, like a sports car, which is a very complex movement for anybody with a weak dysfunctional core or who has an unresolved back injury from the past, which is exceedingly common, even among world-class athletes. I would love to give you the squat assessment I developed for the students of the Czech Academy so you can identify any muscle imbalances, joint restrictions, or technical flaws that include the need for form correction or corrective stretching, joint mobilization, and specific strengthening. Anybody that wants to heal from back pain, avoid unwanted back pain, enhance work readiness, and athletic performance will be well supported by using my free squat assessment checklist. My squat assessment is ideal for any athlete wanting to optimize their performance in the squat. My squat assessment includes three key setup assessments, 11 squat execution assessments, a list of key indicators of muscle imbalances, muscle weakness, or joint restrictions. Additionally, once you've downloaded my squat assessment, you will receive a sequence of follow up videos that will show you how to use it. These instructional videos are not only highly informative, they are also free. To get your squat assessment form and free instructional videos on how to use it to its potential, go to chekinstitute.com forward slash squat dash assessment. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash squat dash assessment. I'm sure you'll be amazed how effective this squat assessment is, even if you don't have back pain, and how much it can help you help others. Enjoy.
1: Let's move on to our next question, which comes from Layla. And although we are moving into spring in the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere is moving into winter. Uh, And her question is: any tips on how to get through dark, cold winters without letting it affect your health or your emotions?
0: Yes, I've been through that. Um, Penny can tell you because I complained to her about it. It just so happened that. You know, Penny and I spent probably close to 25 years living on airplanes, traveling around the world, moving from lecture hall to lecture hall and check advanced training program to check advanced training program. And one block of years there, it just so happened that the way the conferences were set up, we ended up living in winter for three years from Australia to New Zealand to Europe, to the United States, and just the weird timing of it. We were in winter for three years, and i'm a California boy, and I'm a sun lover and I started getting really quite depressed and feeling really like I could barely drag myself to do anything and so I bought a seasonal effect of actually a friend of mine in Sweden who we were staying with i I was just talking to her and saying you know, I'm really struggling from all the darkness and, you know, there in the wintertime, boy, it gets dark long. And she, I happened to mention, it, is there a somewhere in town I could buy a seasonal affective disorder light? Like she goes, well, I just happened to have one. And it was just a little thing, you know, um, maybe six inches square. And I was so blown away how even 10, 15 minutes with that thing shining, I just sat it on the table while I was doing my reading in the morning and it was like God had come to rescue me. So there's a great big tip for you, seasonal affective disorder light. And you can also get full-spectrum lighting uh, so that when your lights are on, it creates more of a sunlight-type full-spectrum light. That's important. Though that's the most important thing that, that I could think of. I've, of all the things that helped me the most, the seasonal affective disorder light I found to be a godsend. So um there's probably other nutritional things you could do there's a bunch you could do with you know regulating sleep cycles but ultimately it, you know when you when you get that much dark your body just has a hard time waking up so i think the most important tip i can give you is just to go do some research find yourself a good seasonal affective disorder light and consider full spectrum light bulbs in your house one tip though if you use full spectrum light bulbs in your house they they keep your body quite stimulated because they trigger the release of cortisol. So you want to turn those lights off a couple hours before bedtime or the um, stimulation of cortisol will inhibit the release of melatonin and you'll end up finding yourself having a hard time sleeping at night. So that's my tip for you.
1: Great. Thank you for that. Question from Mitchell. Um, I want to see how much you're going to confess to this one. What is the vice that you give in to, if any? Surely you sometimes slip up.
0: I don't slip up. I make choices. Um, I have a few things. You know, my body hates, I mean, hates nuts, grains, and seeds, but I love popcorn, and it comes at a cost if I eat popcorn it takes three to four days before my joints start aching and my body swells up and I lose my muscle definition. I have all the signs of excess cortisol and hyperimmune activity. But we recently went to the Circus Vargas with the kids and they had some, um I don't know, caramel popcorn. And it wasn't too overly sweetened, which was good. But I ate two of the small bags, a bag and a half. I shared it with the kids. And uh it was damn good. But it zapped me. Um, I love chocolate, but my body hates chocolate. Man, my body reacts to chocolate like I'm eating poison. But boy, when I eat it, I get high off it. So occasionally, I eat chocolate. Sometimes I'll, you know, I do a lot of work writing. So I've, I'm for the last three years, all this writing, I've been pushing myself a lot harder than normal um, and working long hours, getting up at three thirty in the morning and, you know, going to bed usually at eight thirty at night. But by the time the afternoon comes, it's a choice between figuring out a way to pick myself up. Um, ideally, what I like to do is jump in the cold plunge after a sauna, and that wakes me up. But sometimes I'm pushing it too hard, and that won't even do the trick. So I might reach in, and I have a whole arsenal of different kinds of chocolates, and some of them that are custom-designed, like one with uh, lion's mane in it and um, ginkgo and So some of those things pick my brain up a bit, but they actually, if I eat too much of them, they overstimulate my brain, just make my brain hurt. Um, I love espresso, but I can only do one shot a day or I'll get addicted, and I've been through two bad periods of having to withdraw from coffee. So I have been really good for many years now at not eating more or drinking more than one single shot of espresso in the morning, and Penny can tell you we're both coffee lovers. And we've traveled the world sampling coffee and espresso all over the world, haven't we, baby?
1: We have, yes.
0: But so I have to be very disciplined with espresso, but I do give myself permission to have one shot every morning, and I have the best possible espresso beans and the best coffee machine and grinder you could probably find, at least for me. And I put uh, local, high-quality, super-high-quality organic butter in it. And it's just a godsend. I love it. I could drink coffee all frickin' day. I just love espresso. I mean, if I could mainline this stuff, I would. Um, what else? Do you have any other ones that I have a problem with?
1: <laughs> that's that's mostly it, yes. Yeah. I will say that Paul does have a hard time just having one piece of chocolate.
0: (laughs) One piece of anything. One piece of pie. I mean, I've got this eat the whole thing personality. So, you know, for example, I love chocolate bars, really good chocolate. I've got friends that make chocolate bars with magic mushrooms in them, and I absolutely love them. But God, if I eat a whole mushroom chocolate bar, the chocolate will practically kill me. So I'm having this great mushroom experience while I'm feeling like I'm going to itch myself to death from the chocolate. And it makes my skin go crazy, and I'm just like, oh my God, I can't do that. So, I don't know. I don't know what kind of vices they're looking for, but uh, those are the ones that I work with. But I really don't hold myself prisoner. I just look at it and say, okay, that's going to cause me this kind of pain, and is it worth it right now? And the other, my other vice is, is potato chips. I love potato chips, and anything That's made from any food manufacturer. Even the best organic chips we get mess my body up. My body hates any kind of those cooked oils. But if we have our chef make potato chips, they don't bother me at all. So it's one of those weird things where I have to really be careful about eating potato chips because my body just doesn't like it's the oils predominantly. Um, But I don't, lately I haven't been having to deal with that. It's just, I think the more I work... And the more I give of myself to other people, the more I start craving something just for me, so that's when things like you know chocolate and and uh popcorn and you know little treats start becoming kind of my own little pity party where like, oh I, I, got, I gotta go do something for myself." So other than that, I think i'm pretty you did
1: you did have quite a good time on the homemade mochi bowls.
0: Those were very good, yes. Yeah, I don't do well with rice, and mochi balls are made of rice flour and coconut, and I don't do well with coconut at all. So that's another vice. Every now and then I'll have a little coconut ice cream, just because it's about the least of the devils that I can do. But that's another one that'll cost me about three days of pain. I think, you know, Penny's sitting right here. She lives with me. She could tell you that I I manage myself pretty good. At 61 years of age, I've still got a. A body that doesn't look like it's 61 and can still lift and run and jump and do all those things. So, uh, although if I want to turn myself into a 61 year old, all I got to do is just eat too much of any of those things I mentioned and I'll swell up, blow it up, get all hot and sweaty and gassy, and my skin looks like it's got trouble and I feel like shit. So, I just manage it within my tolerance for discomfort and try to keep moving. <laughs>
1: Well, I have to say that was you were you pretty much confessed to everything. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, let's move on to a relationship question. And we had quite a lot of questions about how to build and maintain healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Um here's an example of a good good question. What are some key things that a young man should be looking for when building relationships? I think
0: one of the most important things is to you know, remember that a relationship's a 50 50 deal, right? So, one of the most important things, because I have to do a lot of relationship counseling, because a lot of people's physical, emotional, and mental pain tracks right back to their challenges in relationships, usually with spouses, and even more commonly with parent- parents' parental problems, no matter what age you are, it seems to always be mommy and daddy challenges. But, um, If you hold the concept that each of us is 50% of a relationship and we have to take responsibility for 100% of our 50%, or the relationship can break down very quickly. For example, if Penny's trying to communicate with me about something, whatever it is, her feelings, her wants, her needs, or her desires, or how to take care of the pigs or something when they're out skiing or whatever. If I'm 10% not present because maybe there's something else I'm thinking about and I don't want to really have to take care of the pigs because I'd rather work on my painting or my book writing or whatever, then it creates a, 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 a deficit in the relationship, but it's bigger than you think because there's not only 10% of me gone, but there's 10% she cannot access. So that creates a 20% deficit in the relationship, and that's enough to cause problems. Um, so the key point I'm making is a relationship's always made of, you know, we're talking about two, a two-person relationship here, you're each half the relationship, so we have to be willing to be present with within ourselves in the relationship, because if we're not present, then it creates a huge deficit, and it leads to communication problems, and that leads to misunderstandings and conflict. The other thing is, it's very easy. We're in a culture that programs us to be very judgmental. And having studied and practiced nonviolent communication and still working with it every day the best I can, you know, Marshall Rosenberg says all judgments are tragic expressions of unmet needs. So, Whenever we're in a relationship, if we say something to someone that's a judgment, which cuts us off from them or labels them, you're lazy, or you did this, or you did that, or this is all bad because you screwed up, that's a judgment. But if we replace judgments with observations, I've observed, instead of you keep showing up late and you're lazy, that's a judgment. That'll immediately trigger the ego to react of the other person that you're judging, I've observed that you have been late three days in the last month. So the difference is you're observing the behavior. The judgment usually is attacking the person. So in a relationship, it's safer if you observe the behavior, but don't attack the person. Otherwise, it causes the person to feel that they've got to defend themselves, and it also makes them feel threatened by you, and it leads to problems. Then the next thing is to try to always deal in wants, feelings and needs instead of woulda shoulda coulda type labels. So if Penny
2: <laughs>
0: if Penny <laughs> wants me to do the dishes, <laughs> which she does every night, um she she could say to me, "I expect you to do the dishes tonight." And I might feel like I'm being controlled. Or she could say, it would really make me feel good if you would support me by doing the dishes. And then I I don't feel like I'm being told that I've got to do something or that I'm being leveraged or that she might be implying that I'm going to lose some support from her if I don't do this for her or whatever it might be. And then I might say to her, well, honey, I'm feeling the need to finish this show right now. Would you mind if I did the dishes?" before I went to bed or early in the morning. And she can give me her response. The key thing is, what are you wanting? What are you needing? What are you feeling? And then making a specific request. So she says, could you do the dishes tonight? It would make me feel good if you could help me that way. I say, well, right now, I'm not very motivated to do the dishes. I'm really tired and I just want to watch the show I'm needing a little time to myself, so she's got a want I've got a need, and then I can come to a compromise, would you mind if I did the dishes in the morning or later tonight? If you follow that kind of guideline of wants, feelings, needs, and making a specific request, and then being willing in the relationship to not always expect everyone's going to just give you what you want, otherwise it's not really much of a relationship, So you have to say, well, you know, how can we find a healthy compromise? Well, the compromise, is I don't want to do the dishes right now, but I will do them at such and such a time. And as long as everybody's at peace with that, then you have a healthy compromise. So, uh, so far what I've said is be 100% in your 50%, or it always causes communication deficits and presence deficits. And then try not to judge, make observations so that you don't attack the person, you're just addressing the behavior, deal in wants, feelings, and needs, make a specific request, don't be fluffy, be very specific, be willing to compromise, and those are some of the most important principles in a relationship that I think relate to the most common problems I see in relationships, so uh, without a long relationship podcast that would be my tips in a few minutes hi everybody i hope you're enjoying the show i imagine you know that magnesium is one of the minerals that people in north america are the most efficient in but it's an extremely important mineral to have in your diet regularly and believe it or not bioptimizers has improved what was already well known to be the best magnesium formula out there called magnesium breakthrough. So I've got Wade Lighthart with me to explain what it is they've done to improve this already excellent formula. Wade, what is new about your new mag breakthrough formula?
2: Well, it's called sucrosomial magnesium. So we have seven different types of magnesium in magnesium breakthrough because they're uptaken by different parts of the body. But a new type of magnesium has been created called sucrosomial. And what it shows in the research and science is that it's actually even more absorbable by the body, particularly inside of the brain, which is a big aspect uh, to enhance neurotransmitter formation, as well as ensuring the rest and relax response in the nervous system that a lot of people will take magnesium for. They find it, you know, clocks them down, helps them sleep better, allows for the relaxation of striated and smooth muscle tissue in the body, which creates an energetic relief. And so when we added sucrosomial, we were able to demonstrate inside our lab facility that we were able to get better improvements. Of course, we have a partnership with the Birch International University. We have some patents we're working on. Uh, Which will kind of relay some of these things, but Sucrosomial was a no-brainer when we added to the formula, improved the results or improved the uptake. And the reports back from our testing team were like, wow, this we get more results with less caps. And that's always the goal for our company.
0: That's excellent. I love it. I, I always say, and people have probably heard me say it before, I just am so amazed how you guys are constantly and always improving and working your best to not only make better products for us, but it doesn't seem to me that it gets more expensive as you make them better. So that's a real gift to the world. Thank you. Where can people get their new magnesium breakthrough formula?
2: All they need to do is go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash living4d, put in Paul 10, get 10% discount on your first bottle. And of course, if you order multiple bottles, you can get an extensive discount on that as well. And like everything else, we sell 365 day money back guarantee. If this isn't the best magnesium you've ever taken in your life, we demand that you tell us and we can give you your money back. But I think you're probably going to demand, hey, can I get more of this?
0: (laughs) That's probably more the truth. So that's mag, M-A-G, breakthrough.com forward slash living number four. And then the letter D, code Paul10. Enjoy deeper relaxation and better nutrition with Mag Breakthrough.
1: Okay, here's a good question from Wayne. And I know that uh, you get quite a lot of these comments and questions on uh, your social media. So, can you explain the experience you have when you are remote viewing? Do you have control over what you are seeing or how you are seeing it? And what does it actually feel like when you're remote viewing?
0: Okay, that's a great question. First of all, I'll say that most anybody can remote view. It does take a lot of work to stabilize your mind. That's why meditation practice is pretty much critical to get you to the point where you can stabilize your mind. The reason is, is when you're remote viewing, your mind is what's directing the process. So every time your mind loses focus on the target, whatever your thought is, if you're trying to remote view, say you want to go, visit the sun and see what the sun looks like, and all of a sudden you think I'm hungry, it's like someone's changed the channel. Now you're not seeing the sun anymore, you're seeing images of you getting food or whatever it is. So the hardest thing about remote viewing is learning to keep your mind stable, and same with astral travel. Remote viewing and astral travel require the same skills. The difference is the astral dimension is infinitely vast compared to the physical domain of things that we would normally go remote view There, there's different schools in, in 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 remote viewing that use different techniques for example some most remote viewing schools or systems work on coordinates and i learned to remote view as a child due to extreme stress in my family and suddenly found myself coming out of my body and at first it scared the hell out of me but then I realized it was a way to escape the confines of my bedroom because my parents used to make us go to bed at 7 30 at night in the summer on Vancouver Island it's light till 11 o'clock at night when you're a 12 year old kid that's like torture so I was just laying in my bed one night and I was really Angry and irritated and upset because I just had a lot of things I wanted to do and I couldn't do them and just as I was falling asleep, I found myself floating up and I was looking down at myself laying in bed and at first it was like, what is going on? and then it scared me and then I dropped right back into my body and my whole body jumped like like I, I like I had come back into it my whole body jumped like you jump when you're scared, when someone scares you. And I laid there, and I was just like so blown away at what had just happened, and I was trying to figure out how it happened, but then I realized if I could do it once, I could probably do it again. So I just started to relax back into that sleep state, and I held the intention of going out of my body. And lo and behold, I did it again, but this time I knew that I had done it intentionally, so it wasn't so scary. And so I just sort of remember just sitting there looking and going, wow, how is this happening? This is, you know, wild. It was just, You know, I was 12 at the time. And um, then I thought, well, God, if I could go out of my body, I said, I wonder, I wonder what will happen if I try to go outside, I, if I try to go through the wall or the window. And lo and behold, I went right through the wall like it wasn't even there. It was really like, if you could imagine that what we think of solid is actually made of light if you had a wall made of light, you could stick your arm right through it. So what happened is I just passed right through the wall of my house. And, and and in our house at the time on Vancouver Island, there was a pasture right next to my bedroom where we had horses and cows. And so all of a sudden I was out there with the horses and the cows, but I was floating. I was in what I call my spirit body, which is a body of light, which is exactly what you leave in when you die. So that Part of you leaves. So you don't actually physically, you, know, you die, your body dies, but y- your spirit does not die. And so then I wanted to make sure I wasn't just tricking myself. So I started going around the property. We had a 142 acre farm, so there was a lot of property. And my father had a bad habit of leaving tools all over the place. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go find something that I can then get up in the morning and check. So I would do things like go to my tree fort, which is out in the woods, and say, okay, I haven't been there in a while. Let me go look and see if there's anything in there. If there was something in there like a hammer that I'd forgotten, I'd get up in the morning, and the first thing I'd do is go out and climb up the tree into the tree fort, and there was the hammer. One time I found my dad's chainsaw behind our barn in the woods where he had left it, and I thought, oh, I wonder if, that's, if I really did see that. So I got up in the morning, and I went out, and there was the chainsaw. Well, I did this many times, to, and I realized... Somehow, I'm actually leaving my body, and I can see just like I can see. In fact, I can see even better than I can see when I'm in my body. Now, I didn't realize that what I was doing was providing the same function as remote viewing. Normally, when a remote viewer works, such as the CIA's program, and I'm going to tell you more in a second here about that. um, For example, I'll just go to that part. As I grew older and got busier and busier with sports and things, I stopped practicing this. I, I I just got distracted. But when I was, I don't know how old, in the year 2000, so 23 years ago, there was a conference put on by Lynn McTaggart in London, England, called The Field, um, and she's run that conference many years. I don't know if she runs it anymore. But that year, the keynote speaker was Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, and they had a one day workshop on remote viewing run by the director of the CIA's remote viewing program. And I said to some of my instructors that lived in London, Would you like to go with me? I'd never told anybody that I had these abilities as a kid. And so when we went to the remote viewing program, what they would do was give you instructions like, Okay, we're going to give you a coordinate. And I've read many books on remote viewing, and that's the standard process. So if you were in a remote viewing program, say working for the U.S. military or the Pentagon, and they wanted to find whether or not the Russians were building a nuclear submarine base, they would give you a coordinates, just like a pilot would use to to fly somewhere. Then what you would do is you would hold your intention on being at that coordinate. You don't have to know what's there at all. You don't have to know what's there. Otherwise, it wouldn't be any point remote viewing. But you just hold your intention on being there. So you focus your mind on that. And then you just completely relax your mind. And while focusing your mind on that map coordinate, while keeping your mind empty, you see what starts to rise up. And so what starts rising up is images. And it can be sounds. And it can be... Different people have different abilities. I'm fortunate that I I can I have all the abilities in remote viewing that I do sitting here in my body. And so you'll you don't really know if what you're looking at is the right thing. So typically what a remote viewer does is start sketching and writing notes. So they say, "Oh, I see a big building or I see a what looks like a giant rocket or whatever you see." And then in in, in a military situation, they would look at what you write down but they also usually give other remote viewers the same target without you knowing it and then they'll take all the drawings and correlate them and if several remote viewers come up with similar things that all look like what they suspect is there or even if it's not what they suspect is there then they will actually use satellites or other technologies to investigate that location and they find at with very high accuracy that remote viewers that are skilled are are really reliable. So in the remote viewing course, one of the things they did was they put photographs in uh, uh, the big photographs, like eight by ten f- size photographs, in envelopes so you couldn't see what was in them, and they taped them to a whiteboard. And then what they would do was they would give you the coordinates of the location where the photograph was taken and then they would say draw or take notes on what you see at such and such a coordinates and so you could do it that way and two of my instructors were with me at this course and they were (laughs) repeatedly blown away because when the instructor would say okay you know, you know look at your drawings and we're going to unveil the photograph and my my instructors that were with me would look at my drawings it would be like oh my god Paul that's crazy you just drew very accurately what was there how are you doing that and I'm, so I you know of course I didn't have time to tell them, and I was in the middle of a course but at the end of the course the instructor said We're going to have a contest now. There was 750 people in the class. So it's not like it was just a little tiny class of five or six people. It was a huge class. It was in an auditorium. The instructor said, tell me what happened. And he gave a date. I think it was July something, such and such a year. Tell me what happened to me at this date and time, which is an unusual kind of request for a remote viewer because he didn't give a coordinates. So what I did is I asked my soul to connect me to his soul and then my i said tell i said tell my to my soul tell me when i'm connected to the soul of the instructor and then i got a yes and then i said to his soul could you please take me to this date and this time so i can see what happened in the timeline of his life and all of a sudden i just doing the same practice just relaxed emptied myself so i let my mind become like a mirror and whatever shows up in the my sort of the you know the the screen of the mind. So a lot of people get images, but what I was what I had had happen was I was floating in my spirit body, just like when I left my body, which is what typically happens to me when I remote view. And I found myself floating outside of a, you know, a multi-story building made of glass, like a, you know, kind of like an expensive executive type building. And then my soul drew me closer to a window. And I looked through the window and I saw the instructor laying on a gurney and it was inside of a hospital. And so I went, oh, wow, this guy's in the hospital. And I noticed that the, there was a lot of people in the room. There was probably four nurses and two doctors, and they were all moving very fast like it was an emergency. And he had tubes and wires and electrocardiogram. And, I mean, there was a lot of uh, equipment attached to him. And so I just watched this go on. And then he said, okay, you know, he called the end of the session. And I immediately knew I was going to win. And so I shot my hand up and I said to him exactly what I just told you guys. And I could see he had a look on his face like he was shocked. Uh, I got him. And then I had to sit there and listen to people saying, oh, you were stuck in a cave and there was, you know, crocodiles or whatever their story was. And I'm like waiting and waiting. Finally, he said, you, the guy that looks like a soldier in the back, you're the winner at that date and time, I had a massive heart attack, and I was being rushed into heart, heart surgery. So I watched him being prepared for heart surgery. Now, I've remote-viewed many, many times. I've helped find lost people on two occasions successfully. Um, unfortunately, they were dead both times, but the families were very concerned because they couldn't find their loved ones. Uh, one was a fire, one the, one was three students of the Czech Institute that died mountaineering and got snowed in and froze to death, and the uh, National Guard couldn't find them, and I got asked to help, and I did tell them where they're at, and that's where they were. But, for example, when I go remote view places like the Sun, Venus, wherever, I've gone lots of places, and yes, I have run into ETs, they are out there, and even had conversations with them. So if you think I'm crazy, then think I'm crazy. That's okay. But I just hold the intention, for example, of being on the sun. And interestingly, there is no distance in remote viewing. Like, I don't have to travel. Like, you know, like if I want to remote view someone's house in New York, I can be there as quickly as I can just drop into the awareness of being there. There is no distance. And and this brings up a key point this is a metaphysical reality the ego creates the illusion of separation but consciousness is ubiquitous so when you empty your mind of your thoughts what you're doing is you're opening yourself to the flow of consciousness but when you hold an intention then you because you are consciousness then you are actually looking at the sun of yourself or you're looking at the tree fort of yourself, or you're looking at the uh, mountain of yourself, or wherever it is that you're intending to be. And so, because I'm in a body of light, for example, being on the sun, uh, the heat has no effect on you. And in, <laughs> another thing is there's a lot on the sun you would not believe, but the beings that are there are constructed of, of different body types that this, the heat isn't um, an issue to them like it is to us. So in a nutshell, the thing that I'm pointing out is that I do what I call spirit travel because the whole of my consciousness goes and I actually have a body. I can go to the moon and, and touch the dirt. I can remote view and I can smell things. I can remote view and smell flowers. I can I can touch things. Um, now, of course, you know, I can't lift up a rock because you're in a light body and you don't have a physical body, so it's hard... With just a body of light to lift something that solid, I can move into the rock very easily. Like, if I want to look inside the rock, there's nothing physically that can limit a remote viewer. There's nothing that you cannot penetrate with remote viewing. Why? Which is why the United States got so nervous when they found out Russia was very involved in their remote viewing because they realized there was no secrets that could be kept from a remote viewer. So, the only thing they can do is hire other remote viewers and, and Sorcerer types that can create energy fields of chaos, and then it makes it harder for the remote viewer to penetrate these fields that are generated by other beings because they're generating fields at the frequency that it blocks a remote viewer, but nothing material can block them. So, when I'm traveling in remote viewing, it's not like I feel myself making this journey all the way to the sun, I just end up there. And I can walk around just like I walk around my house or anywhere else. But again, the two things, that one I didn't mention before, if you have any doubt you can do it, you won't be able to do it. (laughs) So whatever your doubt is becomes your dominant theme. And that's what stops most people from remote viewing. They've been so conditioned to believe in Newtonian physics that they can't get past the belief structure and this is one of the reasons why it's much easier to teach children for example remote viewing than adults and and things like bending metal for example um, because they don't have the belief that they can't do it yet and the other is you got to be able to keep your mind very stable you must be able to hold it like a sniper holding the rifle dead on the target bullseye and allow the information to begin to unfold. Now, I've taught people to remote view successfully, and so there are people that can learn very quickly. In fact, uh, one of my friend's wives in Australia wanted me to teach her, and uh, she successfully remote viewed, and I checked her because I did a little test on her. I won't explain the whole thing just to save time, but she clearly remote viewed on her first try, and she's a quite a skilled yogi so she had lots and lots of practice of meditation so the key thing is being able to stabilize your mind and not believing you can't do it whatever you believe becomes your reality so that's tip (laughs) next tip for you whatever you believe becomes your reality and uh, that's something you should all meditate on so there's my short story of how i remote view and how it goes about it's really important that you be relaxed that you're not distracted that you can empty your mind And you can allow whatever arises in your mind to arise, observe it, but without doubting or questioning it and trusting that what you're seeing is what you're supposed to see. And the only way you can trust that what you're seeing is what you're supposed to see is if you can keep your mind focused on the target. Otherwise, you'll see a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you could be jumping all over the place like a Mexican jumping bean. And that doesn't make for very good remote viewing. So that's how you basically, those are the kind of nuts and bolts of it.
1: Well, then here's a good follow-up question. Um, do you have any books or tips or recommendations on how to meditate for beginners?
0: There's a myriad of books and meditation teachers out there. Osho has lots on meditation. Osho really was a meditation teacher. So if you just go to, I don't remember what they call his organization. If you just search Osho on the internet, you'll come to his organization or just type in meditation, comma, Osho, on a search engine, or even on Am- uh, on Amazon Books. You'll probably find lots. I've got a whole section of my library. I-, I own every Osho book there is, but I just don't have time to go looking through them right now. But meditation is, in principle, very, very easy. The way you do it is you just lie down, sit down, or stand, whatever's most comfortable for you. There's various there's a i think there's a book called the fourfold path by angelese arian uh A A A R R I E and she's an amazing human being she's gone now but she was an anthropologist and a shaman and she gives you an explanation of what what the application of meditation and standing seated versus lying are so you can become more aware of how to use those postures but really for a beginner, the way you meditate is you just take the time to sit, is a good one, in a comfortable chair. I mean, you can sit with your posture all straight like a lot of people do in meditation classes. Having good posture does help for for various reasons. I won't elaborate on because it just takes too much time. But the most important thing is just to be comfortable. And then Hold the intention of just allowing yourself to not think about things. So don't, you know, you have to disengage from, I got to do this, I got to do that. Well, you know, I wonder if I'm going to get a good grade this year. I wonder if I'm going to make enough money or whatever. That kind of stuff is, is the opposite of meditation. But remember, the function of a mind is to think. So the biggest mistake meditators make is they try to stop their mind. Well, that's like trying to stop water from being wet. Good luck. You know, water is wet. So trying to stop a mind from thinking is like trying to stop water from being wet. It won't work. But what you do is you just observe your mind. So you just say, you know, my intention is I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes. And what you do is you just disengage from consciously thinking about things and inevitably, you're going to see your mind starts thinking about things. And then you notice that. You say, oh, look, there goes my mind. It's trying to think about this, or it's trying to think about that. I developed a technique where I, I name the mind the dog, my dog. And so when, when the dog of the mind starts trying to run around and chew on tires and bones and get in trouble, meaning it won't hold still then I relate to my mind as though it's a dog and I just say come on rover whatever I want to call it that day come over here let's lay down and relax you don't need to you know keep looking in boxes and chasing shit around just chill out with me for a minute here you just call it back and you relax and then you'll have a minute or two where there's no activity and you'll really feel this nice sense of calm and all of a sudden, boom, your dog's running around again or you've got pictures showing up in your head or you start remembering things or you can have things like childhood traumas popping up and because your unconscious will start to flow up so you'll see what's trapped inside of you. And, and, the, and the the good news of that is is that if you're not consciously engaging in thinking, like if you're thinking about what you've got to do during the day but you're really just holding the intention to empty your mind, then you start to see what your own mind feels is important or has a charge on. Like a a childhood trauma has got a charge on it. It's unresolved, so there's energy there. So it shows you where your mind is fixated, where you've got mental energy trapped in your psyche or in your body. And so you just observe it. You don't try to fix it right then and there. You're not meditating anymore. You just say, wow, you know, this, whatever it might be, you know, my father sure beat me up a lot and it really was made me sad and scared me. And and so then you can actually start doing focused meditations where you orient yourself towards going into that particular issue. But that's a different type of meditation. But generally, meditation is just witnessing your mind. and and just allowing it to do what it wants to do but don't try to control it the secret is not to get entangled in it when you're meditating and if all of a sudden you start thinking about how bad your father was to you and you start getting emotional then you're not meditating anymore now you're thinking about it and feeling it and you're you're not observing it so what you do is when that happens you say oh that's interesting i i i guess i have some unresolved pain and trauma to work through it's nice to to be aware of that, and now I know I've got something to work on. And then you just say, you know, thank you, dear mind, for showing me that. And you relax. And then you, you just see how long you can go. And as long as you can witness the thought, then you basically are detaching from it, and it no longer has the power to control you anymore because you're no longer entangled with it. And the more you practice, what happens over time is you start getting longer and longer periods where there's just this beautiful emptiness, and in that emptiness, all sorts of things can show up. Uh, you can find yourself having visions of the galaxy, or you know any any number of things, and some of them can be stunningly beautiful. Very similar, like. To being on a shamanic journey with plant medicines but it's just coming to you because you're really what's happening is your mind is expanding and it can expand to you know vast vast you know you can you can expand to become one with the universe it's happened to me multiple times through meditation another technique for beginners is really simple i'll tell you this one's kind of funny but it sure does show you how jumpy the human mind is i think this is a I don't know where this meditation comes from, but I've studied so many books on this, I can't remember them all anymore. But a simple meditation technique is simply go into meditation and say, okay, I'm going to relax my mind. And what you do is you try to count to 10 without your mind jumping off the thought of the number you're on. So I just relax my mind and I start going, one, two, three, four. And right when I got to four, a thought jumped into my mind. I wonder how far I'm going to get before a thought shows up. So there I now have to go back to one. And you say, oh, I got to four. Then you go relax your mind, empty it. And you really focus on the number. <laughs> you got to focus on the number. One, two, three. I got to three and I heard the air conditioning come on and I thought, The thought was, oh, the air conditioning just came on, so now I'm off because i got to be focused on the number. Now, just so you don't feel bad, I've read books by monks that have been meditating for 30-plus years that say they rarely make it to 10. (laughs) Why? Because the mind loves to think. So you don't get upset, you just practice. But every now and then what will happen is you'll find yourself able to go longer and longer. And I've had periods where I've been completely in a state of what's classically called no mind for over an hour and it shocked me because it felt like only five minutes had gone by i looked at the clock and wow an hour's gone by and so that's really what meditation does is it basically teaches you to detach from your mind not be controlled by your mind this is why they say a mind makes a better tool than a master and then through the process of emptying yourself you get the benefit of seeing where you have an unresolved charge on thoughts, feelings, emotions, or experiences, and those are where you're being affected in your unconscious. And so I could go into a long story about that, but that's really what I do when I work with people in therapy, for example. If I want to find out where unresolved traumas are, then I can just sit and meditate with them and ask their soul, have them ask their soul to show them where they have unresolved trauma or anything that's decreasing their freedom or their agency, their capacity to create what they want in their life, and inevitably they'll start feeling, intuiting, knowing, hearing, seeing, reliving things that they had no idea that had happened because it happened to them when they were too young to remember. So those are some basic meditation skills. Remote viewing is different because you have a target to focus on and you it's easier to focus on a target than it is to focus on on nothingness so the, the meditation approach is just to empty your mind and just observe what rises without attaching to it remote viewing is like meditation except you put all your intention so just like i said focus on the numbers 1 2 except with remote viewing we don't have 10 targets we have one so you, where if you were just to say one, 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 and just keep focusing on one, that would be more like a remote viewing process of how you would initiate remote viewing. But if you just practice the things that I've just shared, anyone, you will be learning to meditate. I'll give you one more tip. I I developed this one myself through my studies of alchemy. I took the concept from alchemy and then just created my own meditation. I call it the lifeguard tower. Just imagine you're going down to the beach like a Southern California beach and you visualize yourself climbing up into the lifeguard tower and then all the people laying on the beach and all the birds, the seagulls, the sea lions, the whales or whatever you see out there, they represent thoughts. So what you do is you sit on the lifeguard tower and the lifeguard can't get fixated on any one thing. So If he sees a couple of girls starting to get hot and sexy with each other, a young male lifeguard could get very distracted by that, which would be like getting entangled in your thoughts. And while that's happening, some 13-year-old surfing in a rip current is drowning because the lifeguard's not paying attention. So what you do is you sit in your imaginary lifeguard tower, And you just survey the beach with an open gaze, not trying to focus on any one event. You just observe what's there. You say, oh, there's a seagull. Cool. Uh, Oh, look at the size of that wave. And then, oh, how's everybody doing on the beach? And you just detach from everything on the beach while observing it. And So that's a nice, easy way to begin to learn to detach from your thoughts and just go into pure observation mode, which again is very much like remote viewing. So there's some tips anybody can use. Hi everybody, I'd like to say thank you for learning and growing with me and listening to my podcast and sharing it. And while we're here together for a minute, I'd like to tell you about Symbiotica Supergreens, which is an excellent, efficient way to boost your daily nutrition. It contains a bioavailable complex of natural plant compounds, including chlorophyll, glucoraphanin, broccoli seed, and other alkalinizing greens. This is important because even if you eat a good diet, the combination of daily life stressors coupled with the toxicity in our environment tends to acidify our body. And when we are acidic, we promote inflammatory responses in the body. When we have inflammation from stress, environmental toxins, and other factors, and are acidic, our body doesn't recover as well, we generally don't sleep as well, and we age more rapidly. Symbiotica Supergreens not only alkalinizes our body, gives us excellent sources of plant nutrition and promotes a healthy immune response, Supergreens support cellular detoxification. Symbiotica Supergreens come in a lovely tasting citrus lime flavor. Your Supergreens are packed in 30 easy to use daily servings and all you need to do is squeeze it in your mouth or mix it in your favorite beverage. If you want to add another aid to boost energy and support your immune system, grab some of Symbiotica's excellent vitamin C while you're there and mix it with your supergreens and you will have the energy and vitality to feel confident that you are doing what is important to take care of yourself and your family too. To get your supergreens, go to l y forward slash Symbiotica Number four little d, all in lowercase. Once again, to get your super greens, go to bit.ly forward slash symbiotica L4D, all lowercase. Enjoy your super greens and don't forget, if you want to hop it up, get some of Symbiotica's excellent vitamin C.
1: Next question Why do people find it so hard to change? And specifically, why do people find it so hard to change when their higher self seeks perfection? What is it that's distorting the relationship between the higher self and the personality?
0: Well, first of all, the idea of the higher self seeking perfection is, is actually incorrect, if you're asking me. The higher self seeks experience. The higher self is God. This is why in the Vedas, the Hindu scriptures, you see many times brahman god is atman's soul atman is brahman so you'll see in the vedas that are saying god is soul and soul is god there is no separation between the two of them which my experience of that is a lot and i can tell you it's true at least from my own experience so the higher self is not seeking perfection it and, and neither is God for a simple reason. Perfection doesn't move. How do you improve on perfection? See, everything we do in life we can improve on. I can be a better husband to my wife. I can be a better father to my kids. I can be a better... I can always improve my technique in weightlifting. I can become a better artist. I can become a better therapist. I can become a better gardener. And we do that for our own self-pleasure for our own self-esteem, to just experience what we're capable of. As an athlete, I always wanted to improve myself just to see what I could do, not because I was trying to seek some perfection ideal. But the key point is perfection does not move. So in Buddhism, there's the principle of dukkha, which means necessary imbalance, because if God, shall we say, centered itself in perfection there would be no way god could have an experience because there would be nothing for god to do so metaphorically speaking or allegorically speaking god induces imperfection to allow movement if you balance a bat perfectly on its end it'll be there forever but if you induce vibration the bat might start to fall and now you have movement and you can't have consciousness of anything without movement there's three prerequisites to consciousness space time and movement for something to you to be conscious of something you at least to have have mental space you have to have time because to observe something takes time and movement and time are related together if nothing moves and there's you know if there was nothing moving in the universe you would have no way to um, have the concept of time So the reason it's so hard to change is because we learn things in the beginning of our life and we all have a unique personality and we learn things throughout our life. But when we're learning things as children, until we're around between six and seven years old, we don't really have a sense of ego. We don't have enough capacity for abstract thought And discernment to know whether or not what mom and dad or anyone else is telling us is true or not because we have no way to compare it to any other thing. First time someone tells you that two plus two is four, how would you evaluate whether or not that was true or not without having a lot of mathematical skills? And believe me, to prove that 2 plus 2 was not 4 you would have to have a lot of mathematical skills it would take a cantor or a kurt godel or someone and kurt godel did use his theorem to show that mathematical equations are not as reliable as people think they are but so there you go so the point i'm making is that we all get imprinted with these ideas and these beliefs about ourselves And those ideas, because the older we get, the longer these ideas have been in play, the more efficient they get in developing pathways in the nervous system. And physiologically speaking, that is described as the law of facilitation that says when an impulse passes once through a given set of neurons to the exclusion of others, it tends to do so on a future occasion. And each time it traverses this path, the resistance will be smaller. So the first time someone teaches you to tie a shoe, you don't have a neural network to support it, so it's it's quite hard and you have to really think about it. You've got to memorize it. But each time you do it, the neural pathways start to connect with each other and a network forms. And then every single time you tie your shoe for the rest of your life, an impulse is passing through a given set of neurons to the exclusion of others, and each time it traverses this path, the resistance will be smaller. So then you come along and say, okay, will we'll say someone's got the habit of picking their nose in front of other people like kids often do. And the mom and dad say, hey, don't do that in public. You know, you should, that's dirty. You should do that in the bathroom and you should wipe it on Kleenex, not on the kitchen table or on your pants. And, but the kid's already been picking their nose for, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, whatever it is. So the child then has to really learn to think about that but this reflexive instinctual habit because the body feels the irritation of the nose so the biology wants to remove it and so the child now has to bring that instinctual awareness into cognitive awareness and try to change the behavior but because the instinctual pathway is so well developed it takes a lot of focus to override the inertia of the facilitated pathway so it one of the reasons people have a hard time making changes in their life is because change takes a lot of energy. You, you have to override the inertia of whatever it is that you're trying to change and the facilitation of the pathway because it's a lot easier to do what you've been doing for a long time, whether it's the right thing to do or not. This is why it's so important to have a specific dream goal or objective that you're trying to achieve because if someone's trying to get you to change your diet but you don't really have any reason that you're inspired or motivated to change your diet, you're not going to change your diet because you have to have a source of levity to help you overcome the gravity or the inertia of that belief or behavior or thought process. So if you really have a dream of changing, say, the shape of your body, which requires the changing of your diet, then every time you reach for something that your therapist or life coach or nutritionist tells you is contradictory to achieving your body shape, then you look at the food, for example, and you say, okay, that's going to add weight to my body, or that's going to inflame my body, and you consciously focus on your dream And you visualize yourself looking like and feeling like the person you're choosing to be. And you're literally creating that person in your mind. And the more time you put energy into it, the more that body of your own creation attracts energy and becomes real and begins to have an attractive force that draws you forward, almost like a fish chasing after a lure. So you start actually building this idea or this concept of yourself in your mental body, which is also then emotionalized because you're focusing on your dream, so you now have a copy of it in your astral body. And the mental and the astral are pouring down into the etheric and the physical bodies. So what happens is when you're emotionalizing the dream and seeing yourself as this person and making dream-affirmative choices then the dream's giving you the levity to overcome the gravity and the inertia that's set up inside the the body through habits, inside the biochemistry through chemical pathways, inside the unconscious through unconscious habitual uh, repetition of prior uh, eating behaviors in this case. So the point I'm making is that it takes a lot of energy make change because you have to override all these facilitated pathways. And also a lot of people fear change because they're not sure what's going to happen if they change. For example, if someone was sexually abused and they're unconsciously carrying a lot of weight to protect them from the fear of sexual interaction by making themselves unattractive, but say they go to the doctor for a checkup and the doctor says, look, you have high blood pressure and you're pre-diabetic and you really need to lose some weight because you're you're right you're, on you're, you're, you're the edge of a disease here. Now that might be enough of a goal to scare somebody into managing their behaviors and exercising and doing whatever it is that they need to do, but that's what's called a negative goal. So some people respond better to negative goal setting than they do to positive I get patients coming to me regularly with those types of diagnoses, but I say, look, why don't we work toward a positive orientation unless you feel more motivated by the threat of a disease and being disabled, would you rather focus on having a beautiful body and really loving yourself and being proud of yourself for recreating the shape of your body into something that is appealing to you? And if the answer is yes, then we can use that positive dream to give them the levity and to teach them how to manage their mind and their beliefs and their behaviors accordingly, but they still have to do the work. And this is why a lot of people don't do good with the change process without a coach or a therapist to help hold them accountable. So the answer to your question, if it's not clear already, is that there's a lot of inertia to change and there's also a lot of unconscious programming most often involved in the change process and the unconscious is much more powerful than the conscious mind bruce lipton says the unconscious has about a million times more processing power than the conscious mind so if you don't have a dream or a goal that that you can really feel inspired about and get emotional about in a positive way then you're not going to have the energy to influence the restructuring of the neural networks to support the new behavior and change becomes very, very hard. And a lot of what people are trying to change is hard because it's linked to some kind of an addiction an addiction to coffee, an addiction to sex, an addiction to pornography, an addiction to alcohol, an addiction to exercise, uh, an addiction to work. But all addictions really are um, attempts at safe love. So often it's hard to change because the addiction that a person's trying to change out of is actually what gives them a sense of love and connection without fear of judgment pain or some kind of um, negative backlash Uh, i mean think of all the people that are addicted to porn that may have had some kind of painful experience happen with intimacy where maybe they were criticized as they weren't good enough in bed or they don't smell good or they're sex organs aren't big enough or beautiful enough or it only takes you know one of those to really hurt somebody and then um so the porn becomes very safe because they can you know bring themselves to pleasure and not have to deal with any criticism or or challenges to their self-esteem So if all of a sudden someone's trying to get you out of a porn addiction by just telling you it's bad and you shouldn't do it and it's sinful or whatever, they're not really looking at the reason why you are attracted to porn in the first place. And so now what you're trying to do is you're trying to use some kind of form of leverage or force or guilt or shame, which only just adds another wound. And so the person now looks for another way to get safe love. And so they might stop the pornography, but become an alcoholic. So, classically, what you see when you're working with change issues, if there's an addiction involved, if you don't get to the root of it, then to succumb to the force of whoever is implementing the change be it your doctor, or your parents, or your spouse, for example then people will make the change, but they haven't actually dealt with the crisis. Therefore, they need a neurosis, an adaptive crisis. To alleviate the stress caused by the actual issue that's driving the need for safe love and so they stop eating or stop doing pornography but then they become a workaholic or an exercise fanatic or a religious fanatic and they just move the energy out another hole so to speak so those are some of the reasons why it's hard to change
1: all right let's switch to a slightly different topic or a very different topic, a health-related question. Jeffrey writes, I'm a childhood cancer survivor. I have a massive scar across my abdominals, and my left kidney is gone. Do you have any general tips?
0: Yes. Find a certified rolfer. Rolfers are expert at restructuring, stretching, And mobilizing and restructuring the fascia of the body, which is the connective tissue envelopes that your whole body is held in, right down to the muscle fibril. And whenever you've been scarred like that, you get what's called pursing, because once you have a wound like that, then the scar actually produces what are called myofibroblasts. And what that is, is a muscle cell connected to fibrin. And so as the serofibrinous exudate which is the liquid stuff that forms after you cut yourself starts to congeal it tries to pull the two halves of the wound together and so little tiny muscle cells grow inside the scar to actually have a pursing effect which is why if you've ever seen a woman who's had a cesarean section or anyone with a major surgery you often see that the scars get kind of ugly and pulled together and wavy looking Because the myofibroblasts pull everything together, but once the job is done, the myofibroblasts die out and it becomes fibrous tissue, and the scar tissue can actually be stronger than the surrounding tissue, Um, so it leads to a lot of limitations in the normal movement of fascial envelopes and can cause breathing restrictions and many, many problems. I've dealt with countless scar problems in my career. So seeing a rolfer or another class of people called heller workers, uh, a, an approach by Joseph Heller, and heller work is different in that it also looks into the emotional aspects of the injury, where rolfers typically look more at the structural aspects, but both of them can be very effective. Uh, another difference is rolfers will let you wear your clothes, but heller workers usually want you naked for various reasons so some people don't want to be naked so they opt out of heller work but if there's an emotional component Hellerwork's probably a little bit better now there's other clinicians with skills to work with scar but um, it's kind of a crapshoot if you go to a heller worker or rolfer you're getting someone that's highly skilled and trained at working with fascia and it can make a huge difference the, the loss of the kidney you know there's nothing you can do, obviously, about that except take good care of yourself and keep yourself in really good shape so you don't destroy the other one uh, or you'll be in big trouble. And then, a, you know, a good proper, if you follow the the assessments in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy and do the core assessments, the flexibility assessments, the various foam roller joint mobilizations and all that, you can go a long way to really enhancing your body and if you go on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Paul C-H-E-K Live, PaulCheck Live, look up Paul Check Foam Roller or Paul Check Abdominal Wall Release, and I show you how to release the abdominal wall effectively. Using a four inch Etha foam roller, that's E T H A foam, which is the best ones to do that work because of the right density and they're hypoallergenic so people don't react to them if their skin touches them. And you can go right on Amazon and just search four inch Etha foam roller and you'll find them there. They're not expensive and they're very effective. And if you follow that procedure for releasing the Abdominal wall and literally the whole front of your body that can have a profound effect on improving your posture, mobilizing your organs, releasing fascial adhesions, etc. Another thing is you can find someone who is skilled at visceral manipulation because people with surgical scars like that often have adhesions blocking the ability for normal motility or the natural motions of the organs, which can cause a lot of disruptions physically, emotionally, and mentally and physiologically. So Uh, One of the schools is the John Pierre Barrel, B-A-R-R-E-L, if I remember right. Uh, John Pierre Barrel, uh, or the Barrel Institute. If you look for the Barrel Institute, and they have a locating system to find people skilled and trained in visceral manipulation. I would highly recommend coupling rolfing or heller work with visceral manipulation work, with all the things I teach in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, with my foam roller uh, approach that I share on my YouTube channel, and that can radically change your whole life and experience. I mean, literally everything about you, emotionally, mentally, physically. And scars can also hold really intense trigger points, so a good trigger point therapist will know how to treat your scar. Hi, everybody. I imagine some of you are finding that your mind is not as sharp as it was, or that you can't seem to remember things as well, such as the last page you read in a book, or the key points from a meeting you just attended recently. Do you feel that your brain is taking longer to come online, or that your thinking gets muddled or fuzzy when you've got a lot to get done? If so, Organify Pure may be just the magic you need. A key ingredient in Organifi Pure, called NeuroFactor, showed a significant impact on brain-derived neurotropic factor, which has been widely reported to play a critical role in neuronal development, maintenance, repair, and protection against neurodegeneration. The certified organic combination of herbs in Organifi Pure not only enhances mental clarity and promotes brain-derived neurotropic factor to stimulate the development of new neural pathways, It aids in enhanced digestion, which is important because many cognitive problems are symptoms of poor digestion. To get your Organifi Pure, go to organifi.com forward slash check 20. That's organifi.com forward slash check 20. Get 20% off with your promo code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. That's capitals, check 20. Enjoy Organifi Pure.
1: And the next question comes from what must be one of the youngest listeners to your podcast. The question is My seven year old son wants to know where the first animal came from.
0: Okay. I've meditated on that. I've researched it. There's no way you can find the right answer to that in books for a myriad of reasons because there's different belief systems. So, from an evolutionary perspective, then you would see that the single-celled amoebas formed in the ocean from bacteria, viruses, and fungi, which are at the top or the bottom of the taxonomic tree. And even in the human body, um, 90% of your cells, when you look at yourself in the mirror, look at your body, there's about, depending on which book you read, some books say 50 and some say up to 100 trillion cells, 90% of them are actually not human. They are bacteria viruses, parasites, and other organisms. So if you take the standard model of evolution, everything evolved from the oceans and became more and more complex over the past 4.9 billion years. You know, a billion years is a thousand million. So that's a lot of millions of years. So, you know, it, it seems like, wow, you know, how did we get here? And to go from a single-celled amoeba to a human organism i think what you're a biological anthropologist so the human species is about what 200 million years old uh to, to human species so, yeah. 200,000 years 200, 000, old 200,000 years old but but there is hominids
1: yeah. as in um upright walking yeah they're
0: about 200 million right
1: no no they're they're about 4 million Okay. So oh, that's right.
0: Yeah, I keep get, I'm mixing up. So Lucy is about 2 million years ago.
1: A little older than that, but yes.
0: Yeah, okay. So so that's a flash in the pan, right? 2 2 million years to our primate and closest primate ancestors in the scope of 4.9 billion is is like, you know, one tick of the clock, so to speak. So there's that uh, process of evolution Now, there are different ways to look at it. For example, in Steiner's teachings, he... This is a bit complex for a seven-year-old, but basically the Earth is full of crystals. There's countless trillions of tons of crystal in the Earth. I don't know what it is. Something like... I'm just guessing. It's like 20% of the Earth's um, geological makeup is crystals. I've actually seen... um, videos and photographs um, from caving expeditions way down into the earth and mining expeditions where there's entire, you know, massive, massive crystal lattices with crystals that are, you know, bigger than houses. I mean, you know, 100 feet long and, and, you know, the size of of redwood trees and a myriad of them all woven together in this sort of this like lattice, like you see stalactites and, and things like that in caves. You have to remember we're moving through space at a pretty high rate of speed. I think the Earth is moving at something like sixty-eight thousand miles an hour, if I remember right. And space is charged with energy, and then you also have information. So you get into some deep water here because you have to send then say, "Well, where's the information coming from?" Now this gets into what's called the logos structure, and in theosophy, for example they tell you that what we think of as a star is not just a ball of gas. So here you see the same people that think we evolved out of the ocean also tell you that the star is a ball of gas that's burning and it has a shelf life. Steiner would tell you that the sun, if you were to be inside the sun, which a remote viewer like me can go check, it would be empty and it would be more like being inside of an empty spherical mirror. So if you can imagine a round mirror the size of a sun, which is massively bigger than the earth that it's actually reflecting energy and information and broadcasting it out so the sun is the logos of our solar system and the sun's broadcasting the information that carries the intelligence that would represent the various creatures on the planet the animal bodies and there's other experiments that show things like this to be True, which would be too much to get into. But what Steiner's conception is, and Steiner's a very reliable source of these things, and I'm putting it in my own words, and it's also written up by a guy named Dennis Klocheck, and he's a Steiner initiate, and he has several books. But what you can actually see is that, first of all, if you look at stones, and I've looked at a lot of stones, I do a lot of work with stones, you can actually see. If you hold them in light, like a crystal, you can actually see the shapes and image of, of different forms, from amoebas all the way to animals and all sorts of stuff. So what Steiner's showing is that the stone, the crystals, are actually transducers. They conduct energy and information. They use, for example, crystals are used in radios, and you can tune the crystal to a given frequency. And so, for a long time, radios used crystals as tuners. Because crystals amplify any in information coming into them. So, in a Steiner conception, the earth is picking up the energy and the information that's flowing through it. And, you know, energy can flow right through things. As we know, hot, you, you have, if you have a hot, if you have a, a steel cup, like a stainless steel cup, and I pour hot water in it, very quickly you feel the heat coming right through the cup. So, energy flows through materials like that so in the logos conception the sun our logos our solar logos is and and the other thing you got to remember the sun's not over there that's another misconception you're inside the heliosphere every planet within our solar system is within the sun's body so we think of the sun as over there but the light of the sun envelops the planets within the solar system and just like a human being has an aura or an energy field so if i'm standing next to my wife penny i'm inside of her energy field it looks like penny's there but i'm actually entering penny when i enter into her energy field so if you think of the heliosphere like the womb of a woman and you think of the planets like babies inside of the heliosphere. And just as the baby draws its nourishment and feels mother's emotions and mother's hormones, each of the planets in the solar system is getting energy and information from the sun that runs through the crystal lattice, and that becomes the energy and the information that informs the biological life processes and helps them become the different things. Now, the aboriginals have a saying that's alluding to this. They say, You can kill all the kangaroos, but you cannot kill kangaroo dreaming. So what the aboriginals are saying from their deep metaphysical perspective is that you can kill the physical body of the kangaroos, but because the dream of the kangaroo exists, the kangaroos will always manifest in any environment where kangaroo-ness can be supported. So that's an ancient Conception, the Aboriginals are the oldest people alive on this planet. They're said to be at least fifty thousand years old, that group of people. So they've got a lot of time on the Earth and they're very deep spiritually as well. So in a nutshell, in the logos conception, the suns look, we use fiber optic cables to send information all over the world, right? That's the most of the internet is based on fiber optics, and people forget about that. Light light has an almost infinite capacity to carry information. And light is an electromagnetic frequency. It's an electromagnetic wave. And electromagnetic waves can go right through the planet. So these electromagnetic waves from the sun and other sources, because each of the planets has a formative force as well, which would be another factor. If you study alchemy, each of the planets also influences everything on this planet. So I'll give you a quick concept there to work with, because it fits in with this one. Steiner shows... That you can do the mathematics of the orbit of any planet in our solar system and you can take that orbital mathematics and develop a ratio and then you can take any plant and measure the distance on the stalk relative to this so you got the stem and then you got the plants branching out so here's the stem there's a branch then you go up you know two and uh, a quarter inch, and another one goes out. So he shows you that you can tell which planet has the greatest influence on the architecture of any plant by measuring that ratio and correlating it with the orbit of the planet. And there may be some other factors that I have forgotten because it's been years since I studied that, but he shows very clearly how each planet influences the species of all the biological life on this planet. And that's that gets into astrology, and so what you find, it's not just our sun, that the planets themselves have creative influences, and alchemy shows you, for example, which metals are more related to Saturn versus Jupiter versus Mars, and which plants have more of these characteristics. And this has been used throughout ancient times to make natural medicines, because if they know what your illness is, and they think sulfur the energy of sulfur will help counterbalance that illness, then they will look for something that comes from the planet that has that sulfur energy, which if I remember right, might be Saturn. And so they would make medicines that were probably as effective as (laughs) all the garbage that we're getting in the medical system today, but they couldn't make money off of it. And also homeopathy works on these principles as well, which is energy medicine. So what I'm saying is that In this conception, as the Earth is flying through space, it's moving constantly, so it's getting information not only from all the planets and our moon that are rotating with it and around the sun together, but from the sun itself. And the sun is also part of a galaxy, so the logos of our sun is a sub-logos in the galaxy because there's bigger suns that are influencing our sun. So ultimately what you find is the whole universe is co-creating every other part of the universe but in our planetary sphere life forms emerge because the basic building blocks of life or the material aspects that make up the the body be it uh, inanimate matter such as the calcium in your bones versus the biology that makes up your flesh which is biological life that's all being influenced by this overarching formative intelligence that's moving through the planet and being broadcast out of the planet and emerging out of the earth and that would be the kangaroo dreaming and the environment would be the right heat the right moisture and the right vegetation in which it would support the kangaroo concept now so that's another conception those two are sort of competing ideas there's another conception as well, and this isn't another esoteric conception, but I think these esoteric conceptions need to be evaluated because just because a bunch of people believe something doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people believe in vaccinations, and that hasn't worked out well for some of them. A lot of people believe that God will burn you in hell, and that hasn't worked out for some of them. So you know this is what spiritual exploration is all about going into these things meditating on them finding teachers that can guide you having an open mind and that's what i do i explore these concepts the other conception that's well established in a number of different circles from theosophy to uh various religions you know hinduism's got something like i don't know 240 million gods or some crazy thing not that it's crazy just i mean it's it's a completely different concept But just like we know of angels, Steiner also shows you the hierarchy of angels. So he shows you the structure of angels. And so you have angels and you have archangels and and you go up in this structure and there's like nine levels of angels. And each of them is in charge of something bigger. For when you get all the way to the top, they would be in charge of a universe, for example. And then there might be an angel that's in charge of the creation of a galaxy and everything in it. And then below that angel would be sub-angels. And so in in some areas, Steiner talks about this as well because this can also go hand in hand with the sun because, see, for, for Steiner, the sun is a being, like a, a, a real living being, just like Gaia is the living being of Mother Earth. So in this conception, these angelic beings are creator beings. And so they actually dream up the kangaroo, and the worms, and the insects, and the birds, and the bees, and the flowers, and the trees, and the zebras, and the dolphins, and the whales. And so just like we do art, they do living art. And they actually pour their own consciousness, you could say they pour their soul into their creations. And so in this conceptions, the angelic beings are the animating force that we would call spirit and soul. And so they are, shall we say, just like a mother is the source of the creation of her child in her womb with the father's sperm, these angelic beings are like the creative intelligence that influence how matter forms, and so they become the entelechy, or the guiding intelligence, and that's what helps guide, for example, viruses bacteria and fungi to become a single-celled organism to become a multi-celled organism or how do you get a platypus versus a uh, jellyfish versus anything else and so that conception says that we are actually the living embodied spiritual art of higher beings and that we for all intensive purposes live inside of their being just like a womb uh like a child is in the womb of a mother so that's another conception of how things got started and that conception could work with the conception of the energy and information flowing from the sun through the crystal lattice and being broadcast into the earth which becomes the means by which that organizing intelligence manifests itself in the earth so you could have these two together or separate if you wanted to i don't know what the answer is for sure i think I think all of them can be true at the same time. You see our conception of time four point nine billion years. imagine if you were a being like to consider the Milky Way galaxy as a being. Well, the age of that being would be a lot more than four point nine billion years old as a galaxy, so the Earth could be quite young in the conception of that being, and time for them. You know, what, what would be like a day for us could, could uh, I mean, a, a thousand years for us could be a minute for them. So because time is always relative to location in space and relative to who your neighbor is, right? Our, our year is one lap around the sun. But what if you're a galactic being and there's three billion or a trillion suns inside of your being, then time would be very, very different at that level. In theosophy, they have two parallel lines of evolution, which are important to mention here. There's two parallel processes of evolution. One is called psychogenic, and the other one's called anthropogenic. And what theosophy shows is that psychogenic and anthropogenic evolution, evolution of the psyche, the soul, the consciousness within each being, runs parallel with anthropogenic evolution so if you say okay x number a billion years ago we just had single-celled organisms in the ocean and there was nothing really on the land then the soul of those beings would have only evolved to a certain level but as those souls evolved then their creative capacity for what would be kind of considered in a in a, in a materialist conception of darwinian evolution would actually be the governance of the guiding entelechy or the soul force saying, we want the ability to do this, we want to be able to fly, we want to be able to swim, we want to be able to walk on land. And so they would be progressively inducing these conscious forces as guiding influences to restructure the cells and the hormones and the equipment of the bodies in order to progressively achieve anthropogenic evolution of bodies with evolution of soul so in that model there is a correlation between the evolution of species and the evolution of psyche so on this planet most people think human beings are the tip of the evolutionary sword but but that's quite hubristic because whales and dolphins have more brain than we do and they don't start forest fires and wars and poison themselves, and things like that. So if you start looking at research by people like uh, John Lilly and others that have done extensive research on dolphins and whales, you find there's plenty of evidence that they're as intelligent or more intelligent than we are. Um, so there's basically three, more than three. We got the standard model, we've got the model of energy flowing through the crystal lattice which would be the consciousness of the universe creating then we've got the angelic conception of higher beings and then we've got the psychogenic and anthropogenic parallel evolution which marries the soul or the intelligence which still could fit in with the other models with the physical models take your pick (laughs)
1: Well, I hope you just haven't blown your youngest listeners' brains out um, with that uh, answer to their question.
0: There's a very good book for this young person, um, because I don't know if the child's a boy or a girl, but there's a book called Kingdom of the Gods by Jeffrey Hodson, and I think it's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-H-O-D-S-O-N. He was a, a theosophist A very skilled teacher, uh, uh, a clairvoyant uh, with tremendous power to see the subtle realms. And in the book, he hired a professional artist and worked with the artist to do artistic renderings of all the spiritual beings. For example, the spirits of water or the spirits of the air or the spirits of trees or of mountains or of a flower and i'm clairvoyant too so i can see these things and they're real but for a kid to see what somebody who's very spiritually evolved can see is quite interesting because children have this ability until parents and society convinces them that they're making it up and i've with Mana I used to talk to him about what he would see. He would be seeing all sorts of things. He he he, you know, he could see people that were on the other side and talk to them and I've had many situations with Mana out in the front yard of our house in Vista where he's having a full blown conversation and and we've all seen the man that was there that I think I think he died there but didn't want to leave. And so Mana would be having a full conversation with this being that we would call a ghost. So kids can see all this stuff. You know, we used to have mystery schools and we had very well set up processes of teaching people how to access their subtle energy perception skills clairvoyance clairaudience clairsentience things like that and we didn't have all this dogma and and scientific um, rigor and control Uh, and you know when you look at how much science doesn't know and how much science thinks it knows but turns out to be wrong That just becomes another religion. Um, You know, look at the Big Bang Theory. It's very, very well established, and they defend it like crazy, but nobody can tell you what caused the Big Bang. So it's really just a myth. It's just well bought into and and believed in because people keep getting educated into it as though it's fact, but it isn't fact. It's no more fact than anything else where you don't know the beginning. If you don't know the beginning of something, how can you have any assurance of what the end product is or where it came from? So I think these, for children to share as many ways of looking at this as possible so that they can do their own exploration and make up their own mind, and it's the same with adults, except the adults just buy into things. The problem is belief systems give you permission to stop asking questions. See, if you believe that god is this or god is that then you stop asking is it really true if you believe that the earth um is this and it came through this process and you believe this about the sun or you know whatever then you stop asking questions and that leaves you very very susceptible to the belief system because belief systems routinely turn out to be either wrong or incomplete or fallible um and so i i personally I learned a long time ago, no matter how much I think I'm right about something, to try to keep an open mind so that if something comes along that could actually be a better explanation, I don't reject it just because it doesn't fit the belief system. I say, well, that's amazing. Let me look into that. And I follow it wherever it leads me. There's another approach that's just too complicated to to describe in a few minutes, but it's described in my new book series. and and it fits a lot of the origin myths because, and I share probably 12 or 13 origin myths to back the point that I'm making, but it's a a, a much deeper um, process in which I have a lot of diagrams to sort of explain it so people can understand it. Um, So I'll just close by saying there is another conception um, but it would be quite hard to really follow in a few minutes and I couldn't really do it in a few minutes because you'd have to have all the pieces of the puzzle put together so uh, hopefully this seven-year-old child won't be 16 by the time my books are out
1: (laughs) hopefully not
0: (laughs) you know turmeric's really really hot now there's a lot of scientific research on it but they're not all created the same. So I brought Autumn Smith on to tell you about Paleo Valley's turmeric complex so you know exactly what the benefits are and why you, like me, should get your turmeric complex from Paleo Valley. Autumn, tell us about your turmeric complex.
3: At Paleo Valley, we are big believers in food as medicine. And so turmeric, of course, it has beat drugs out. We know it's anti-inflammatory. We know it has brain benefits. We know it has joint benefits. But what most people don't know is that a lot of turmeric supplements only contain one isolated compound of turmeric called curcumin. And so what we did instead was create a complex. We added organic turmeric and then ginger and rosemary and clove, which were some of the most DNA protective spices studied. And we created a complex. We added organic coconut powder and pepper for absorption. And so, we've created a really high quality, highly bioavailable turmeric complex that will hopefully help you to feel your best. And all you have to do to check it out is go to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK 15 that's lowercase C-H-E-K-15 to save 15%.
1: Well, uh, your comment about how your beliefs and conceptions of ideas can change over time um, brings us to our last question for today's episode, which is, how has your view of Jesus Christ evolved over time?
0: Well, that's a good one. That's another one that could be a long discussion. I'll try to keep it as succinct as I can. My mother was a Christian scientist when I was a child, so my first conception of Jesus Christ came by way of Christian science, which is which is a branch of Christianity. Now, I, I should let you know, and you can research this yourself, there is now 45,000 branches of Christianity. So if Jesus was really Jesus and the founder of Christianity, he's probably a little bit confused about right now. Because imagine if I, the founder of the Czech Institute, came back in a thousand years and find out there was 45,000 different branches of Czech Institute training, then how would you ever understand what the hell Jesus was teaching or Paul was teaching? Now you've got a complete snafu, is a military term. If you want to know what snafu means, look it up in the dictionary. So originally my conception was the standard Christian conception. Jesus was the Son of God. Now, that leads to a lot of problems, because the Christian model is you have to take Jesus as your Savior, or you can't go to heaven. And the punishment is, you know, not very pleasant. Purgatory, hell, all that nasty stuff that really scares the shit out of children and psychologically damages them, makes them afraid of God, which is just sickening, because God is unconditional love. So to make kids afraid of the highest, purest form of love is really uh brainwashing and it's it's bad it's just it's it means people are too lazy to actually ask deep questions and really spend the time to to get the answers to the point where they can have a sense of heart-centered harmony with the answer instead of just uh, believing stuff um so then my mother joined the self-realization fellowship which is the teachings of paramahansa yogananda And they still speak of Jesus as a a very enlightened man, but the conception is more of Jesus as somebody who did the spiritual work to grow and develop himself into someone who had God consciousness, which is called Christ consciousness. So as I grew... Uh, med- learned to meditate when I was a kid from monks and started really exploring these questions. I started reading other books and getting different perceptions of Jesus. And the conception that you know people like uh, some Sufis have and various other people that are, shall so we say, more evolved in their religious ideology is that Jesus was a man just like any other man, but he practiced the spiritual development concepts and methods that were available in his day, which many of them are still available, and much of what we practice as religion or spirituality was around long before Jesus. So if you go back to the year, uh, what we would call zero, or the beginning of our calendar time, uh, you know, if this is 2023 you go back to 0 to get to 1 so the time of the origin of jesus or his birth we you could call it and you studied what was on this planet you got the vedic scriptures that are said to be at least 3500 years of age if not longer people some some of these things can't be dated you've got sumerian tablets i mean the list of stuff you have and and you've got confucius who gave us the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you long before Jesus was around, and anybody that just practices that can become enlightened, and you know, that's why I say to people, if you'd be far better to get rid of the 990-something pages of the Bible and just rewrite, do unto others as you would have them do unto you on every single page until people finally get it and start practicing it. And so, um, the complications of Jesus being the only Son of God sets up all sorts of racial tensions. It sets up religious tensions. It's the basis of wars in in many instances. It's the basis of infighting between Muslims and Christians, between people of the Jewish faith and Christians, and even though the Christianity is an emergence from Jews, it's Judeo-Christianity. And then other religions, it just causes a huge can of worms. And then there's another problem. What do you do with someone who was raised in Asia who's never heard of Jesus in their life, but is being told that everybody that doesn't take Jesus as their Savior is going to burn in hell. Well, how could you have a God that is the source of all that is, that would ultimately burn itself in hell because it hadn't heard of Jesus, because it didn't even live in a country where Christianity was known of or popular. And so it just, basically, these are the kinds of questions that people don't ask themselves but they'll literally go to war and bomb and kill and blast the hell out of people with different belief systems. So my conception of Jesus went from what I was told as a child to being, you know, in church going, wait a minute, how can you tell me that God is love and Jesus is the Son of God and sing onward Christian soldiers marching off to war with the cross of Jesus going on before? That's completely and utterly the opposite of everything you keep telling me about God and Jesus. So like, as a child, I was like, what the hell is going on? These adults scare me, and they're making me afraid of God, and they're even making me afraid of Jesus, because he goes off to war too. Yet in the Bible, you listen to what, read what Jesus says, love thy enemy as thyself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, Jesus is full of these sayings, lift the wood and I will be there or split the wood lift the stone and i will be there split the wood and i will be which means god is everywhere the kingdom of heaven is before you but man does not see it i can go on and on the problem with christians they don't practice christianity <laughs> that's the real problem and so we have other challenges too there's a book i because you told me that question was in there i think every christian who thinks jesus is the son of god and the only son of god should read this book, Christianity Before Christ, by John G. Jackson. Now John G. Jackson is an atheist, and I read literature from anybody that I think is intelligent, and that's part of being open-minded, but this tells you the story of Christianity before Christ, and it shows you some very undeniable facts. And I've studied this in several other books. I just happened to pull this. Another great one is The World's Sixteen Crucified Saviors by Cursey Graves. The World's Sixteen Crucified Saviors by Cursey Graves. Because the Christian story is Jesus is the only one that ever rose from the dead, etc., etc. But Cursey Graves shows, documents, 16 other saviors from different time periods, from different religions that all rose from the dead. Then you have the Buddhists who have had 163,000 people in the history of Buddhism achieve rainbow body, which means that they actually, while they're alive, reach such a high vibrational state that their body dissolves and turns into a rainbow of light. Yet, these people can still communicate with people and be in what's called a rainbow body or a light body. Okay, well, that's pretty damn good. Then you have Charles Fillmore's Christian Metaphysical Dictionary, And if you look up the word Christ, he tells you right in there, Christ is not a name. It is a title. And it means one who has become one with the all, or I'm paraphrasing now, united with God in consciousness. You know, and so there's the old saying, Jesus would no more have Jesus Christ on his driver's license than you would have penny ceo on your driver's license instead of penny crozier your last name so you you even christians are confused deeply about christianity and the meanings of the words in the bible i've i've i think i've only met two christians in my whole life that actually knew the actual meanings of the words adam and eve for example so what John G. Jackson shows, and what many of my books on mythology and people like Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and many others have shown repeatedly, is if you take the story of Jesus Christ as it's told in the Bible, and you look at it as a mythology, and you say, okay, what are the key features of this mythology? Jesus was born on this date. He was born in the manger. You know, you start taking all the key pieces Three wise men came to see him. He lived this long. This, he healed the sick. So you actually start breaking this story down, which is a myth, into its key components. Then you say, okay, are there other myths that have similar hallmarks to them that are built on the same architecture? It turns out there's myths from all over the world. And right in this book, he gives you at least a dozen, all of which are much older than the myth of Jesus Christ. One of my books, I think it might be the book by Kersey Graves I mentioned, shows 369 direct parallels between the story of Jesus and the story of Krishna, and Hinduism is much older than Christianity. So what it shows is that the Christian church modeled the story of Jesus off an already very successful myth and used it because, A, a good story always sells. You know, Harry Potter sells, Right. Uh, I mean, Harry Potter might outpass, outdo the Bible for sales. Um, but the, the point that I'm making is if you study comparative religion and mythology and you look into the structure of myth and you look into the structure of the story of Jesus, you can find myths all over the world that are far older than the story of Jesus that have exactly the same key features in them so it's like they just changed the names of the characters but it's the same basic story. And I've actually got books in my library, at least two of them, and I've seen documentaries on this. I've got a picture, I can't remember, in one of my books it's a picture of a 16th century I think he was a pope, Catholic pope. And in there he is recorded for making the statement, somebody saying why do people keep believing this Jesus story when it's just a story? And the Pope says, I don't know, but it sells really well. I saw an interview with someone from the Vatican who was being, he was one of the, you know, Vatican higher ups, one of the bishops or whatever. He was being challenged on camera about why do people keep believing this story? And he said, You know, the truth is that it's just a story. But if you try to tell people that, they won't believe you anyhow. And it's very profitable, so we just keep going with it. And so, what have I learned about Jesus? I've learned that Jesus is whatever you make Jesus out to be. And to the degree that Jesus, or Lao Tzu, or Buddha, or Muhammad, or Krishna, or any of them, inspire you to love more, and to be more moral, which means to protect life and to be a better person, it doesn't matter whether they lived or didn't live. All that matters is that you're embodying the essence of love. And when we embody the essence of love, we express love and we share love, and the world becomes a lot better place than it is right now. Because so far... Most of what religion has got us is nothing different than politics and propaganda and mind control and war and territorial infighting. And if you look at the Christian crusades and you look at the history of warring and religion, it's shocking. It's disgusting. So religion, like anything, is a double-edged sword. It can be used to support people and teach them to live and love better. Or it can be used to destroy their lives and control them. And it just becomes another story which is propaganda to brainwash people. And I think it's important that everyone develop their own relationship. And then you've got this issue of an egregore, which is a thought form. If enough people believe something, in the vibration of mind, it actually produces an entity. And clairvoyant people like me can see these entities. And Jeffrey, in that book I mentioned by Jeffrey Hodson, Kingdom of the Gods, he shows you, for example, what it looks like in, the, in his third eye when, when music is playing or the vibration of the people in the church, what it creates an entity. This has been used for thousands of years. Shaman used to cast spells by creating egregores. So an egregore is really a thought form. It's a mental entity. There are so many people that have these beliefs about Jesus that he becomes real in the mental field of humanity and becomes a conscious entity entity with all the thoughts feelings and emotions attributed to that entity. And I mean without a long explanation of enter- of information fields and brainwashing technology and what can be done with broadcasting covid's a perfect example of it. I mean look at all the people that just totally and utterly convinced to be afraid of something they have no physical evidence for at all. Not one single court in history has ever produced a real covid Nineteen virus. It's never been produced. It's all just been images on television. So people are just uh, programmed to believe in stuff. So you can believe whatever you want, but until someone gives you physical evidence, you're just believing in an idea. The point is, is that you can have an egregore for a nation. You can have an egregore for a football team. You can have an egregore for a religion. You can have an egregore for a corporation. If you love the Chicago Bulls and you wear their Clothing, and you're part of that, then you can feel the spirit of all the Chicago Bulls lovers, and you can go to a game and watch them get pissed off if their team starts losing or if someone thinks they're being mistreated. The next thing you know, you got a war in the stands because the Bulls fans and the egregore of the Bulls is now at war with the egregores of the, you know, LA Lakers or whoever they're playing. So, my conception of Jesus has evolved from Jesus being the standard Christian being to a man who evolved himself into what myriads of mystics have and and enlightened beings have throughout the world that don't get much press to a mythology that's extremely profitable and very good for controlling people's minds that simultaneously produces an egregore but simultaneously within myself When I read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and say, look, if this man was alive and could live this way and demonstrate it to the rest of us, he would take us to a completely new level of spiritual evolution and we would probably have a lot less wars and we would probably be much more conscious. Our children would be better off. The planet would be better off. So my closing statement is, I've evolved so that my relationship with Jesus really is more in line with Steiner's conception of Christ consciousness, or the Buddhist conception of the da, or the Taoist conception of the Tao, or uh, the my conception of God without any labels attached to it, which is pure unconditional love or pure potential, and. I think to the degree that anyone's relationship with Jesus is a loving relationship and inspires that in all their relationships, then that is a viable use of the story of Jesus. And that's what a myth is. A myth is a story that tells itself. So there's a mystery for you there. A myth is also something that never happened, but is happening all the time. Well, in my conception, Jesus never happened, but is happening all the time. The question is, is Jesus happening in a way that's making your life better or more challenging, bringing you into harmony with people of other belief systems, or opposing you against them? If you study what's attributed to Jesus as a Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes, you can be rest assured he wasn't part of any war effort. So I think that God loves a great story, and every story has protagonists and antagonists and you know you got luke skywalker and darth vader and you got jesus and the devil and it works out really well makes a lot of money keeps people very excited and very interested and so passionate about it they fight about it just like sports fans do and people that have different views of evolution do and different views of science and and off we go and it's the same old story Uh, and but but you know to the degree that jesus is real for you my encouragement is just to make sure it's the Jesus that's safe to have a loving relationship with because it inspires you to be more loving to everyone regardless of what their religion is and if Jesus did live it's clear that at the time he was uh, would have been alive and in the region he was alive that there was the influence of many other religions moving in the area and Jesus himself was no more a Christian than Buddha was a Buddhist so what people call Christianity and label on Jesus becomes a bit of a mystery, because he never ever used the word Christianity, um, because there's no writings or records of it everywhere, and it's also very interesting, having studied the life of Jesus a lot, isn't it an interesting fact that there's not a single record of anything ever being written down by or about Jesus till 45 to 75 years after his death. And I've looked at many scholarly investigations. I've done entire multiple university courses on it by people like Luke Timothy Johnson that are scholars on this. And at the same time, when the historians look into the records in the region Jesus was in, they tell you exactly when a new bathhouse was built or when a new post office was built. And and the like, silliest little details, but you'd think a guy that could feed 5000 and do all the miracles that Jesus would have would have been front line news and etched into the historical record but it's just not the case and if it and and though there are things attributed to Jesus how do they get into the record f- 45 to 75 years after he died you would have think it would have been headline news that Jesus was crucified and was the king of the Jews and all this stuff but there's nothing in the records in that period of time. So what you have is a mythology. and But don't underestimate the power of mythology, because mythologies can make you or break you. They can start wars or end them. They can destroy a planet or save a planet. And right now, whatever Jesus you're following, as long as it believes in morality and respecting life and taking care of the planet taking care of other people then you're right square in the camp of Confucius or Lao Tzu or Buddha or Krishna and it doesn't matter and in fact if all those beings that I just mentioned were here alive that would all be getting along and hugging each other and celebrating life and teaching us almost all the same principles so that's how my evolution of Jesus has changed in 61 years
1: Thank you very much, Paul, for spending time with us today.
0: Thanks. Hope I didn't bore you to death, because Penny's not really into all that stuff. She leaves that to people that like to get lost in stories that are not objective. So, uh, since so many people get lost in stories that aren't objective are my patients, I have to investigate these stories to see if we can find a better story. So... uh, Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for some great questions today. Thanks for compiling all the questions. And thank you to all of our sponsors for your love and support and your excellent products. And thank you to all of you for anything you purchase from the sponsors. It supports the podcast so I can keep doing the podcast and finding great guests for you. And uh, thank you all for listening. And thank you for being the inspiration and the growth opportunity and the change that we all need to see from each other and for each other in the world right now. And I look forward to sharing something new and interesting with you next week. Lots of love.
1: Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check. If you enjoyed this episode, we recommend episodes 18, 20, 22, 24, and 26, featuring Paul's Evolve series, where he talks about how to evolve yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and how to evolve your career. Or check out episode 59 with Paul on ancient wisdom and reimagining your health and performance. In episode 151, Paul talks about the people who changed his life. And in episode 164, Paul discusses how to create real health. Episode 223 featured Paul's advice on planning for your new year. You can find Paul on Instagram and TikTok at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4 d with Check. You can also watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at czechinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You could read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at czechinstitute.com forward slash podcast. A big thank you to our sponsors, Bioptimizers, Paleo Valley, Symbiotica, and Organifi. Their support is essential in producing this podcast, and we hope you will show your support by visiting them online and trying all the amazing products they produce. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify, or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast.